And off we go. October the 21st, 2018, lecture discussion number 41 on the book of Joel. And assuming that the usual percentage of the analog and the U and the digital audience are completely lost, uh, which, as you know, is my methodology. Remember the cliffside motto, driving away the visitor and confusing everyone else any and all Sundays for 25 years. So that's the plan here, and I'm good at it. Uh, <laughs> some people think that that's just a uh, disclaimer or a obfuscation of the fact that I can't produce a coherent lecture. Uh, and that could be true. I mean, there's a possibility. Or I'm doing it on purpose. You decide. Talk to my high school kids someday. They're all in their 50s. <laughs> Oh, that's the truth. They're all there, everyone. Okay, not not the grace uh, Christian kids. They're in their forties with grandchildren. Now that's the softball game I was at. Uh, one of my students brought up uh, their, their child and said, "Hi, coach. I'd like you to see my grandson." Wow, that's uh, probably not optimal for my. Uh, yeah, didn't didn't go good, did it? Okay, where was I? With the and I really do, honestly, I actually want you to be confused. I know it sounds like a, a nutty way to approach it, but it is how I was taught. And I learned from this in a way I think it was very valuable to me. So I'm trying to continue the the tradition, and with that in mind, it's pr sometimes it's best to review. It's likely a futile attempt to round up stragglers, but it's still some, a good idea. So where, how do we get all of these pieces of information, and how do you make sense of them? Here's where it all kind of starts. The book of Joel references the sun and moon. Does it three times. Sun and moon, as you know, are representative. They are called the greater light and the lesser light. And whenever you see any light reference, you have to immediately ask yourself, is either or both of these talking about Christ? Is it likely the lesser light is talking about Christ? That seems unlikely. The greater light, clearly so. So what is the lesser light? Well, people will say it's the church because it reflects Christ. There's another uh, alternative view. That if the greater light is a person, then the lesser light also has to be a person. Who would be the lesser light? I'll take answers on. It's a good time to take it. Who rules the night? Lucifer. So that's another position. I just throw it out for you to see how others have thought about these kinds of things. Good luck finding that, by the way. Ah. Right off the bat, failure. Joel has the sun and the moon, day and night, light and darkness, good and evil. That's Genesis 1 uh, through chapters 1 through 3, knowing good from evil. That is an important aspect of all of Genesis, but it is hammered in, if you will, in Genesis 1 through 3. Again, representation is here. Who, who does the sun represent? 
Who does the moon represent? Or do they represent something other than an individual? Jesus Christ is the greater light of which the sun is the the symbol. I'll tell you that straightforward. I think it's absolutely obvious. The greater light is, when it's applied to Christ, is not the sun. It's the primeval light, which is the light of life. He calls himself the light of life. As you know, John 8, 12. Very important that you know that. That's, of course, Genesis 1, 3. These are the same. The light of life and and the primeval light are the same thing. They're equal. Christ declares himself to be the light that hits the darkness that causes life to explode on the earth. And it's separated from the darkness. So the greater light clearly is Christ. And the greater light is non-particle light. It is not photon light. The sun, again, is a symbol. It is particle light. It does have photons. I saw a physics um, analysis that it takes a million years for a photon to get out of the sun because of the chaos by the uh, uh, fusion process and the heat that is emitted. It doesn't escape in the gravitational elements there. But my point being is, is that the light of life is not a particle-based, a photon-based light. Particle light is merely symbolizing the greater light. The light of life, that is Jesus Christ. He is the light that creates and he is the light that resurrects the dead to life. So we have a resurrection element here. I have this gentleman in Japan that sends me these wonderful pens. And every time I replace the ink in them, because he sent me quite a few replacement cartridges in a pear tree. (laughs) Every time I take one apart, I just throw the ink all over the floor and all over my hands. So I try to do it near somebody else as often as I possibly can. That is exactly right. I do indeed want to share it. You might recall, you might not, but you might, my recent vociferant statements concerning the resurrection of the dead. I say it this way all the time. Jesus Christ is the resurrection. The resurrection. It isn't pluralized. He is the resurrection. And he says so without allowing for any other. He is the one who resurrects. It is Christ alone. And that, of course, as you know, is a fundamental in Scripture. Christ alone. To repeat this, as I've done recently, when there is a point of decomposition, this is the definitive question, if you will. When I have decomposition, what is the totality? How much is required to reverse putrefaction back into vibrant life? How many cells are dead? You've heard me ask that now repeatedly. This is why I'm doing it, because he calls himself the resurrection. Who but God has the ability, 
the necessary omniscience, the power to restore a decomposed body, to reunite the living soul and reinstall the spirit. How much, back to John Bell and information theory, how much information has to be known to do that? What's required? Who can do it? And once you've evaluated the scope of a resurrection of one living being, don't even, if you want, make it a human Make it a mouse. What, how much information has to be known intellectually to restore a decomposed body to life and reinstall the spirit, the soul? And once you have that, and again, just a recently deceased one. Go ahead, pick one that's four days old, Lazarus, that has the stench of death. How about a body that's incinerated? Or one that is decayed to dust? They opened up uh, some king's, I can't remember who it is now, an English king. They opened up his tomb recently. There was one bone and dust. How much information is required intellectually in the mind of the person who is going to resurrect that bone and that pile of dust. Who can do that? Who has the mind to process that? And successfully, who can resurrect one bone and a pile of dust or a victim of Hiroshima? Or someone consumed by fish. Who can resurrect that? Jesus Christ is the, he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He did not say he was a resurrection. He is the only one that can do this. John eleven twenty five. And you'll ask me, what about Elijah? And that's really a wonderful question. Or ask me about some other resurrection. Elijah is the one that comes to bear today because he's part of this discussion. Does Elijah possess the knowledge, the capacity to hold the information necessary to resurrect a living being that has decomposed or been annihilated, burnt, decayed to dust? Does he have it? Keep in mind that when Elijah resurrects, he takes off his talent and puts it on top. Christ does the same thing. He replicates that completely. We'll go over that. We've done it before, but we'll go over it again because Elijah becomes extremely important to all of this, as you know, especially if you were here last week. Now, that's A. Here's B. I'm going to make I'm going to write smaller. Sorry, Internet. John 11.25 is the resurrection of Lazarus. So that's another thing that we are doing. Lazarus. John 11.25. And more. Lazarus is the first of the three signs of Jonah. So I have the first Jonah, if you will. Not counting Jonah. Um, We'll get to... I, I might have made an error... Uh, Supper Dave, if he truly exists, pointed out that uh, it was confusing at best and might have been misspoken at, at worst. So I correct that on page three, I hope. Lazarus is the first of the three signs of Jonah resurrection after four days.
decomposition. But the sign of Jonah is three days and three nights. Oops, I'll put it up here. Days and nights are decided on the fourth day. Established on the fourth day. Where's my eraser? So we have to reconcile the four days of Lazarus with the three days and three nights of the sign of Jonah. Why is the sign of Jonah not seeming to follow it perfectly mechanically and mathematically? But the sun and the moon, as I said, are on the fourth day and Lazarus is resurrected after four days. Is there something about that? Does that fit together? Jesus Christ, the light of life, the fulfillment of the greater light, which rules the day, which is the sun, also is four days from Adam. What do I mean by that? That fits on our little puzzle. Second Peter 3.8. Do not forget this one thing. You got one thing. Don't forget it. That's not hard. You got one thing. Just don't forget one thing. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack considering his promise. What promise is he considering here? What's the context? What's the promise mean? Don't forget one thousand years is one day. That's one thousand years equals one day. There's your mathematical equation. Don't forget that. When you're trying to solve things that have days in them and years in them, there's how you do it. Christ has established this timing back here on the fourth day. The sun and the moon came four days into creation. Christ comes four days into the 1,000 equals one day position, right? It's not a coincidence. He's following a set template that he has designed. Christ has established the countdown clock, the sun and moon. That's back to the book of Joel, see? Day and night, sign of Jonah, resurrection. Again, obviously Jesus himself is the second of the sign of Jonah. So, the second sign of Jonah... Is Christ. The first sign of Jonah is Lazarus not counting Jonah. Now, I might have said, and I probably did, because what's that I am? Old. I made mention of the fact that Christ buried the Pharisees with signs of Jonah. So, incorporated in the second sign of Jonah, which is Christ himself, is all of these that came out of the grave and went into Jerusalem after Christ was risen. So that is the totality of that is the second sign of Jonah. For those who object that Christ never presented himself to the Pharisees and they never got a sign of Jonah, well, what he did was send probably thousands of signs of Jonah to them, just like he did the lepers. That's how he operates, doesn't he? None have an excuse. So let me correct that in case I did. Christ and Lazarus, I'm sorry, Christ, yeah, Christ and Lazarus combined, because Jesus is three days and Lazarus is four days, That makes seven days. Seven days takes me back here. Genesis chapter 1. All sevens go back to the first seven. Okay? Now, I have to get rid of this because I wrote too big. After A and B, 
Now we're at, whoops, C. And C is Revelation 11. And we're specifically working on about 7 through 14, but it's all of Revelation 11. That is the third sign of Jonah. That is the two witnesses. Why are the two witnesses the third sign of Jonah? They are the one, and of course that is a three and a half day of situation. You can see me drawing back to Joel and all of that by now, I hope. There's 7,000 dead, there's an earthquake, there's a... A loud voice. Oops. Can't spell earth today. Loud voice. Come up here. All of the elements. That is revelation. And there is resurrection there as well from that voice. 7,000 dead, the rest believe and glorify God. And once we got through with that, where did we go? Do you remember? That all, those three things, but this third thing primarily sent us to 1 Kings 19. And there we are. 19, in fact, the whole chapter. Now, what is 1 Kings 19 about? It's about Elijah. I'll give something away. Usually I wait till the very end to give this away. Elijah is pretty darn significant here. Because Elijah, I can prove, which I will today, I will prove that Elijah is one of the two witnesses. If you've ever wondered about the Elijah position... Because some people have the Enoch position. There are all kinds of position on who the two witnesses are. Some say that the two witnesses are going to be taken contemporaneously. They'll come out of this last generation. They'll be Jewish men. And the positions are open. And I have an absolute opposite view of that. I think it becomes clear when you see 1 Kings 19. Elijah, after slaughtering the priests of Baal, receives a messenger sent by Jezebel. We don't have time to read all of it. I'm just going to give you the synopsis. Jezebel is an evil, wicked woman who has a relationship to the great harlot of Revelation. She is a picture of the great harlot. So Elijah slaughters her priests, has them all killed. He then receives a messenger sent by Jezebel who tells Elijah, the messenger gives him this message that Jezebel intends to kill Elijah before one day passes. Elijah has just slaughtered 850 priests. Now, he used people who repented to do it, but there was a tremendous amount of power involved here. God reveals that he is the God of Israel through using Elijah. So... Jezebel says she's going to kill him. And Elijah, again, after executing 850 prophets of Baal, the prophets of the queen, he runs for his life. Elijah is certain Jezebel will kill him. Now, that is 
that just doesn't seem to make sense. And if it doesn't seem to make sense, that it means it's a tremendous treasure here. Why is he? He just, he just took her apart. God came, fired at them, real fire. Burnt them. And the people recognized that God was there and went and, and killed all those prophets for him. The people repented and killed the prophets. What does that have to do with Revelations 11 and 7,000 dead? But why did Elijah run? Why would Elijah think that Jezebel can kill him after going through that experience? And I find it very interesting. It seems illogical to repeat that. Elijah, again, had been, the, he is there in front of these 850 Baal priests saying that they are not godly, that the true God of Israel rejects them. The people saw the display, fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, and Elijah said, kill those 850, and they did. Then he gets a message, an email, a text from Jezebel, who says, I'm going to kill you. And he goes, oh, no, she's going to kill me. And he runs for his life. So the people fell on their faces saying, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, but not Jezebel. She wasn't affected by it at all. Okay, keep one, uh, go back to Revelation. I have 7,000 die in the city of Jerusalem in an earthquake and people fall on their faces and glorify God. There's a lot of similarity. What are the motives for everything that occurred? What are the people thinking? Jezebel did not repent, did not believe. She instead would focus on killing Elijah and Elijah ran. He fled. And Elijah therefore had no assurance that God would prevail against the great harlot. In any event, Elijah hides in the wilderness, and then the angel of the Lord comes. Who is the angel of the Lord? That is Christ himself. He comes to Elijah. How many times do you think he comes to Elijah? Just take a guess. Twice. Christ comes twice. That would make perfect sense. So now when you read the story, start saying to yourself, what is this story trying to teach me? And how does again fit to Revelation 7, 1 through 14, the third sign of Jonah? To repeat, the resurrection of the two witnesses is the third sign of Jonah. And one of those is Elijah. So obviously I have to bring Elijah and what he's doing. This is one of the preeminent things Elijah does. So Elijah hides in the wilderness. The angel of the Lord Jesus Christ comes to him twice, comes twice to Elijah. And what is Christ saying by all of this? What is the meaning of this literally true account that we're not going through today in, in, in specificity, but we will in the future? Elijah is a real person who did and said these very exact things. A literal, actual human being. And with that said, what has the Lord God Almighty placed in this, hidden in this, in this experience of Elijah? That's what we're trying to discern. We know, I hope we know, First Kings 19.18, there are reserved 7,000 who have not kissed the face of Baal or bowed down. Elijah didn't believe that. Elijah thought that he was alone. 
He said, I alone am left. That's why he ran. We also know, we know that there are 7,000 who have not kissed the face of Baal and have not bowed. And this connects to Revelation 11:13 and Romans 11:4 through 5. Again, the third sign of Jonah, the resurrection of the two witnesses, the 7,000 slain, the great repent, repentance of Israel. See also Joel 2, 12 through 32. Let me start picking some of those off. I got to erase this. So it went really fast. And the people that watch on booktube face get frustrated with me. Joel 2.32 And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 10.13, Paul repeats this verse, Shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Remnant. Joel 2.32 talks about a remnant. So does Romans 11.26. Remnant. Remnant. The 7,000 that God has reserved are the remnant. There's a remnant in Revelation. So to put all of those on the board for you, there's also Romans 11, 4 through 5, Joel 2, 1 through 32, the whole thing. So all of that was just for you folks on the Internet. These people, they already knew every one of those passages and they have memorized them because they're just amazing. Which is why we never show the audience. (laughs) Okay, I tried to emphasize last Sunday that the mantle of Elijah brought clarity to the face cloth of Christ. Hi, Deborah in San Diego. You thought I was never going to get to this, didn't you? Now, here we go. I said there's a relationship between those two. I would expect that to be the case. So, the folded face cloth of Christ and the mantle of Elijah fit together. Remember, the folded face cloth is evidence of resurrection. How is the folded face cloth evidence of resurrection is the question. And that's probably now a good time to reread 1 Kings 19. So here we go. Gave you the synopsis. We'll pick some verses out of it and take it on. Let's start at verse 4. But he himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. It's a bush. And he prayed that he might die. Did Christ ever pray that he might die? Let's get that off the table. Be careful. What does he say to Peter when Peter says that you won't die? He says, get behind me, Satan. Just thought I'd bring that up. You wrestle with it. 
He prayed that he might die. It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. But then, then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly the angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Christ comes and says, Arise. Whenever Christ says, Arise, what happens? You arise. You cannot resist that. Just like, come up here. Arise. What's he eating? Why does he have to eat? Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. Boy, that sounds great. What's the cake? Is it chocolate cake? Is it a wafer? Is it a is it unleavened? What's the water? So he ate and drank and lay down again. So he arose. He lay down again. Who is Elijah in this story besides Elijah? Does that make sense? I hope it does. Start thinking about that aspect of it and see how it works out for you. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time. So I got angel, angel. The, the, not a. It says an in most of your translations, but the smart ones have the capital angel. As it has to be. It has to be Christ here. It doesn't make sense if it, does. it is not Christ. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. In other words, the journey isn't, you're not going to make it. So what is the journey? Why isn't he going to make it? It's too great for you. So he rose and ate and drank and went in, went in the strength of that for food 40 days and 40 nights. He had a cake and some water. You try this at home. This is the new cake and water diet by Cliffside Community Chapel. Buy the book. Guaranteed. He's traveling 150 miles. Or so. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in, went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb. So he's in Horeb. And do I have to repeat the 40 days and 40 nights and take you back to Joel? Whoops, here we go. And the sun and the moon. And there he went into a cave. Oh, my goodness. He's in a cave. Any old cave? Just found a cave. Just wandering around. Forty days, forty nights. He's got a jar of water and some... Whatever it is, I always think hardtack when I think of that. I don't know, but it could easily be unleavened bread. And spent the night in that place, and behold, the Word shows up. Who's the Word? How many pictures of Christ do I have here? And descriptions. I got the Word. Behold, to both angels, Christ is all over this story. He is everywhere in it. Why? Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts and the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone are left. Put that back on the board. I'm it. That's what Elijah says to the answer to answer that question. Then he said, go out. And God says, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces. How strong of a wind is that? Before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after that, after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after that, the the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after that, after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here? Same question. This is God again asking him twice the same question. Go through the Bible and especially in the New Testament and find places where God, Christ, repeats questions. They become very important now. And he said, Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Okay, we'll stop there. Notice, Elijah in the wilderness praying for death. The angel touches him. Jesus Christ himself, arise and eat cake and water. A second time, the angel touches Elijah, arise and eat, because the journey that you're about to embark on is too great. It's 40 years. Oh, I'm sorry. It's 40 days and 40 nights. I'm not really sorry. Note Matthew 4. Jesus Christ is in the wilderness. How many times? Forty days, forty-nine. How much food do you have? Did he have cake in a jar of water? You think God needs pizza? Oh, he's really hungry. He says he's hungry. Does he mean hungry like we mean hungry? Or does he mean hungry for something else? How does he define hungry when he's hungry? There's a fly buzzing around me, which is evidence of my lack of cleanliness, overall hygiene. Not good. Not good. How does that fly know? Remember when you used to have spray deodorant? Well, we can't have that anymore because it destroys the universe. It's like Freon. We can't have refrigeration because it destroys the universe. But while I was teaching P.E., I noticed these kids would come in and they wouldn't take showers. And we were not allowed to force them to take showers anymore because that was <sighs> disrespectful. Yeah. In the old days, we hosed them down. Because why? After PE class, it was the right thing to do. Anybody ever taught junior high boys PE? It isn't pretty. This is scary stuff. How do they live, you ask, after one semester of that? How do you keep them alive? But nonetheless, we weren't allowed to make them take showers. It's against the state educational system's concepts, I guess, for our edicts. But we did notice that they anticipated that they didn't have to take a shower, and they brought Gillette spray deodorant by the case And they would stand there and just spray each other down. Big fog of Gillette all over them. 
It was fantastic. I never forgot it. I used to go out and tell them, I said, that's a really good idea. You guys are thinking. This is smart. And, uh, you, you do need to know that maggots love the smell of uh, Gillette, aerosol, and deodorant. They love it. You should know that. Maggots. Why? For example, and lice. They also love it. I'll give you an example. Here's Billy. Didn't work. Anyway, point being is that uh, I don't know what the point is. No idea. The fly. That's how I got there. (laughs) Never let a 13-year-old boy prepare your food. That's the lesson. You're going to get more Gillette aerosol than you are anything else. And it's not an antiseptic. Jesus Christ is in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. Moses is 40 days on the mountain, Exodus 34:28. Israel is 40 years in the wilderness, Numbers 14, 26 through 35. Which one had the great journey that was too great for them had to prepare? Obviously, Elijah must be attached to those passages, and it's for us to figure out the, the, connection, the connections and the purposes of it all. Let's just talk about Horeb. That is the Mount of God. Elijah goes into a cave. Who else went into a cave in this exact same area? Moses did, Exodus 33:22, and, and, of course, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, comes to Elijah while he's in the cave. Did Jesus Christ, the Word of God, come to Moses while he's in the cave? Yes, he did. Did God pass by Elijah? Yes, he did. Did God pass by Moses? Yes. Elijah asked a question. I repeat, the omniscient God asked Elijah a question. I said that read. Elijah didn't ask a question. Jesus Christ asked Elijah a question. Omniscient God is asking Elijah a question. What are you doing in the cave, Elijah? What's he doing in the cave? He's hiding from who? Jezebel. I alone am left, he says. God knows the answer to the question. He knows why Elijah's in the cave. Elijah doesn't really even know why he's in the cave. He thinks he knows. And he's right about the small... Specific to Elijah problem, but there's a bigger element here. And God knows the answer. Why are you in the cave, Elijah? I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Elijah is alone. No one is going to defend him from the great harlot who is seeking to chase him down and kill him, hunt him down and kill him. Jezebel is hunting him down and he flees. To repeat that, he's alone. No one can defend him. He's being hunted. He's on the run. They are intent to kill him. The Jew. Israel. It's in Revelation. Revelation 12, 13 through 17. Joel 3, 12 through 13. Habakkuk 3, 13. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. Revelation 19, 1 through 18, the Jews are being hunted to be killed. Elijah has an unmistakable parallel to the nation of Israel, the firstborn nation of God, Exodus 4, 22. 
the Jews, the firstborn, he says to Pharaoh, Moses says to Pharaoh, uh, through, God says to Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go on a three-day journey so they can worship me into the wilderness. And obviously Jesus Christ is the firstborn. And that is something that Israel testifies of. The whole Old Testament testifies of Christ on every page. Never forget that. And Jesus Christ is alone. But Christ alone is not the same as you or me alone. Christ alone carries with it also means Christ alone. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Christ alone resurrects. That's different than Christ being alone. Can God be alone? He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. What does Christ alone mean as opposed to Elijah alone or Israel alone? But Christ is also alone. It's a theme of Scripture, Christ alone. And they seek to take the life of Christ, don't they? they? Do they ever succeed in taking the life of the living one? No, it's impossible. He must lay his own life down. It cannot be taken from him, John 10, 17 through 18. God responds to Elijah with a strong wind, breaking rocks with a strong wind. Has that ever happened before? Strong winds breaking rocks, an earthquake, a fire, and the still small voice. Where is God in those four? He is in the still small voice. He is never in the clanging bell. He's always in the whisper voice. Understanding that helps you in a great deal of doctrinal error. But God calls Elijah out of the cave. And again, note that Moses was put into the cave so that he could not see the face of God as God passed by. At Exodus 3, 6, Moses hides his face. Elijah was called out of the cave as God passed by. And Elijah wrapped his face with his mantle or his robe. Christ has a mantle or a robe as well, doesn't he? It is reasonable that Moses and Elijah both covered their face at the exact same cave. The evidence, I think, is definitive. They are in the same spot and they're in the same cave. And they're both two witnesses. Oops, too many S's. So, where do I put Moses here? Elijah, Moses, they're in the same cave with their face covered. And they're they're the two witnesses. Where else are they together? Transfiguration, we'll get to that in a second. Same cave covering their face. Of course, that is Genesis 3, isn't it? Because Adam hid from God, but you already thought of that. Everything seems to return to Genesis 3 because everything returns to Genesis 3. I have Adam hiding from God. This causes some very difficult questions, the most difficult of the obvious question. If this is the precise location, the cave of Moses is also the cave of Elijah, And I think you can't argue otherwise, though some will attempt to. What happened here? Why this cave? And Moses, the cave is called the cleft of the rock, right? 
By this I mean, why has God chosen this exact point? What else happens here? What, what happened here before uh, Moses and Elijah were there? That's why I brought up Adam. It's going to be in Genesis 3. Why this point? Why this cave? God does this really often, this repeating of exact sites. For example, the axe head of Elisha is lost. That Elijah throws the branch into the Jordan River and floats the axe head up. It's lost at this same place that Christ instructs John the Baptist to baptize him. Those places are identically the same. In the Jordan River, the Ark of the Covenant went through the Jordan River and stopped in the same place that the axe head floated and Christ was baptized. Why does God love that spot? He knows about it. Well, he's omniscient. He's really good at geography. The skull of Goliath. David cuts off Goliath's head and buries it. And Christ makes sure that his cross is right on top of that. Why did David bury it in that place? Why does Christ want to be put his cross on that place? What happened there? Just really quickly, I won't say these words, but I thought them. As an aside, there is this wonderful correlation between Psalm 1610 and baptism. What is Psalm 1610? It is that the body of Christ cannot decay. What I mean by that is Jesus Christ did not need baptism, did he? What's the purpose of baptism? It is a mikvah. It's a cleansing. Baptism is a symbol of cleansing of sin. Christ is the holy creator God. He is sinless. Some think that it is death and resurrection. We'll argue that later. Overwhelmingly, it is a mikvah, a cleansing. Also, the grave clothes are evidences of sin, aren't they? They are necessary to mask the corruption of death, the smell of death. Christ didn't need those. He doesn't need to be baptized. He doesn't need Gillette deodorant. See how I work that in? I mean, come on. Come on. That's some real professionalism right there. Don't try that. I mean, that. Yeah, that's not. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Jesus Christ is sinless God. Psalm sixteen ten, Acts two twenty seven. His body did not decay. He has no seeming use for grave clothes or baptism, but he does both. That puts them together. So that helps you understand why he's doing both. The baptism of Christ was for a different purpose than our baptism. The grave clothes of Christ are for a different person than our grave clothes. Obviously, it relates to the axe head and the ark because the baptism happens in the same place. Put them all together. The face cloth and the grave clothes return us to the mantle of Elijah. And Genesis 3, Jonah's face was wrapped in weeds, Jonah 2.5. Moses hit his face, Exodus 3.3. I should insert this. The Asiatic custom, even now in the Middle East, is to show respect to your superior by covering your face. We do the opposite. We take our hats off to show respect. They cover their face. Elijah wrapped his face in his robe, his mantle. Lazarus has a face cloth. It's likely that Adam covered his face. It would make sense. 
Christ, however, removes and folds his own face cloth. He removes it himself. That's a big deal. And John immediately knew this was a definitive proof that Christ was resurrected. Keep in mind, John's gospel ends the resurrection section of Christ with the great declaration. Jesus commands, do not be unbelieving, but be believing. Unbelieving of what? Believing of what? Specifically. I repeat this a lot. John wrote his gospel with the soul, the Holy Spirit through John, with the sole singular purpose of providing beyond any doubt that Jesus Christ is the I am, the word made flesh, the great God of creation, the breath of life, the light of life, the resurrection. That's what John's doing. He's put all of those together and he's saying this is the attributes, the characteristics of God. And Thomas gets this statement said to him, do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And he answers that, the unbelieving, believing command. John 2, 20, 28, he says this, as soon as he sees Christ, he says, my Lord and my God, God. Thomas knows this is God. What proved it to him? Thomas is believing this is God. Don't be unbelieving. Be believing. Peter does likewise. John 21, 17. You know all things. It's a declaration of omniscience. Jesus affirms Peter's believing. He says, follow me. Once you know that this is, once you are believing that this is God, then he says to you, follow me. Obviously, I'm placing John 20, 27 alongside of John 21, 17. Thomas and Peter. Jesus refers to Peter in John 21. says it three times. Of course he does. He says, Simeon, son of... Oh, I should read one. Here's what he says. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simeon, Peter, Simeon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. <coughs> Christ said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simeon, son of Jonah. said to him a third time, Simeon, son of Jonah. Why is he saying Simeon, son of Jonah? Oh, it's just an accident. I mean, he just, you know. This is omniscient God. He says, Simeon, son of Jonah. Simeon, son of Jonah, John 21, 15. Simeon, son of Jonah, John 21, 16. Simeon, son of Jonah, 21, 17. Three times, Simeon. Simeon means hearing. The name means the hearing. Specifically, it's applied to the nation of Israel. This is the hearing of Israel. The hearing of Israel is asked three times if he loves Christ. He's asked, he's called Simeon, son of Jonah, Simeon, son of Jonah, Simeon, son of Jonah, three times. Three times he's given the sign of Jonah here. God does it three times. Now, as you know, most explanations from the supposed learned biblical scholars, bless their hearts, they focus on the three denials of Peter, proposing this is Jesus' way of bringing shame to Peter for his failure. He denied him three times. That's what they say. And that's the predominant teaching of John 21, 15 through 23. I'll concede that that is the dominant 
teaching. But it's my opinion that Peter is called Simeon by Christ because of Peter's representation of the nation of Israel. And he is Simeon, son of Jonah, because of the sign of Jonah. He's put the nation of, gener- of, of Israel and the sign of Jonah together. And he even says to the nation of Israel, all you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. This is called the Simeon prophecy. If you've been here any time, you know that. Simeon is imprisoned by the brother, by his brother. Joseph imprisons Simeon. He, he locks up, if you will, the, the hearing, the ability of Israel to hear. I have Simeon the prophet who will not die until he sees Christ. I have Simeon the Cyrenian who his job is to carry the cross beam of Christ. And it's not because God can't carry a piece of wood. And then I have Simeon Peter. Remember that Simeon, the brother of Joseph, was a killer of the circumcised. The Gentiles circumcised themselves as a statement of faith, and Simeon went in and killed them. That's a picture of Israel. So you have this Israeli nation Prophecy between those. And then Christ adds to it, Simeon, son of Jonah. Both Simeon and Jonah reflect, typify the nation of Israel. That's what the poisonous gourd is and the hatred for the Assyrians. The connectivity of that to Mary Magdalene and Thomas, it's all in the same context. First we go to Mary Magdalene, then we go to Thomas, and then we go to Simeon, son of Jonah. That's the order. Mary Magdalene thought God was a gardener. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Omniscient God asked questions. Thomas was adamant. Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's what he says. This statement of Thomas is mysterious, to say the least. Thomas was not present when Jesus showed his hands and his side to the other disciples. Why is Jesus showing his hands and his side? Can't he heal the wounds himself? What's he need? Does he need them for proof? He's God. He can, God can do things to prove he's God. Why is this evidence? Why does Thomas have to have it? He wasn't there when Christ showed his hands and his side to the other disciples. Thomas refused to believe their account. He would only accept a personal experience. God would have to come to Thomas. Who is Thomas? And God would need to prove himself by showing his wounds. His wounds would be the proof. Why is that necessary? When Jesus comes for us, are you going to say, wait a minute, I'm not going. Unless I see your hands, i got to see that side. I'm not doing it. You go ahead and take everybody else. I'm not going to make a move here. I got to have proof. Give me proof. How many people demand that God prove them? Prove himself to them? Why does God keep his wounds? Clearly, it's an important facet aspect. Thomas sees the wounds and immediately knows that Jesus Christ is God. John saw the folded face cloth and knew immediately that Christ resurrected himself. That Christ is God. That's all that John writes about. Christ is God. 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 That's all he's doing. Saw that folded face cloth and went, wow. The passage does not say that Thomas touched Christ, only that God gave Thomas permission to do so. In contrast to Mary Magdalene, 
he did not give her permission. He gave Thomas permission. That's high priest protocol. The high priest cannot be touched until he fulfills his assignment. There is an assignment that Christ fulfills in the interim between Mary and Thomas. It's done so on purpose. What, so what did Christ do between Mary and Thomas? And Jesus says to Thomas, John 20, 29, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Again, Thomas believed that Christ, Christ's absolute Godhead, Thomas knew this was the resurrection and the life. John knew this was the resurrection and the life. One saw wounds. One saw the face cloth folded. Okay, really fast now. Let's add a few more things just for the Internet. They may or may not be immediately obvious. John ends his gospel with Simeon Peter jumping in the water after he puts on his coat. I'm going to jump out of a boat into the water. But first, I'm going to put my coat on. Doesn't seem to make sense to me. Just leave the coat in the boat. How close to shore are we? Peter has a habit of jumping out of boats. Gets in over his head. What does he scream to Christ? Save me. Simeon Peter. Sign of Israel. Sinking beneath the waves. Save me at the last minute of the book of Revelation. So Simeon Peter jumps in the water after he puts on his garment, dragging in a net filled with 153 fish. He's the one that drags in the net. This is the third appearance of Jesus Christ to his disciples. None of the apostles at this one dared ask Christ who he was. How come they didn't know who he was? They spent three years with him, three and a half years. They don't know who he is. But they don't ask who he is because they know they shouldn't ask who he is because they know who he is. Everyone knew that this was him. But Simeon Peter, son of Jonah, son of Jonah, son of Jonah, was asked three questions by omniscient God who knows all the answers. And only after Simeon Peter, son of Jonah, son of Jonah, son of Jonah, answers, confirms that Jesus Christ is omniscient, he knows all things, is he then given permission to follow me. And that completes the question from Simeon Peter at John 13 36 through 38. Why can't I follow you, he says to Christ. Because you don't believe who I am yet. Finally, lastly, John, come up here. The two witnesses come up here. There are two witnesses. Clearly, they're Moses and Elijah, the two that were in the same cave. They're at the Mount of Transfiguration together, Matthew 17. What does Simeon Peter, son of Jonah, son of Jonah, son of Jonah, at the Mount of Transfiguration do? How did he do? Did he do good? F. Got an F. He got three Fs. An F for every tabernacle. He gave equality to Moses, Elijah, and Christ. He said, let's build a tabernacle. One for you, one for him, one for Elijah. Equality. John was there. John and James. Peter, Christ said, tell no one about this until I have resurrected. Why did he do that? 